Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Authentic Podcast with Justin Doulard. And thank you for tuning in to another episode. It's time! All right, we are back with another episode, episode 42. Uh have Mr. Bill Courtney with me today. Bill, you are a retired New York police detective with 33 years of experience, uh, notable for starting the priority targeting section, better known as the controversial rap police. So I wanted to lead off and ask, and I think I know the answer, but how did you end up in Tulsa after you retired from the... Yeah, well, that's kind of a strange set of circumstances. Um, I kind of grew tired of New York in decline again. And uh, I have an apartment. I still have it, actually, in Manhattan. Uh, I pass it on to my daughter, but it's uh, just in case I want to escape and go back. Uh, I have the option. But uh, a friend of mine, uh, Danny O'Connor, opened up the Outsiders House Museum here. I came out for the opening. And I met a lot of his friends and everybody, there was a whole different vibe here, a real friendly vibe. Um, the people I met were in club owners, uh, musicians, people who were like, you know, artistic and had different like, you know, galleries and different things. And it was a really cool, um, like I said, it was a really cool vibe. And I immediately got introduced, like I had a set of friends immediately, you know, and that's something you don't get back east. And so I, I came back a few more times, said, you know what, what the hell, let's do it. So I went and found a place downtown, uh, bought it, and I've been here a little over three years now. So, um, you know, I miss the East Coast, I miss the ocean, I miss the food, but that's about it. I don't miss the circus, and so here I am. I thought I had met you when I did the podcast with Danny. Uh, you probably don't remember, but in I the came house, by the was house. It? Yeah. Yes, okay. And I remember him telling me, yeah, my buddy Bill's coming by. He moved. I got him to move. I think you were maybe visiting at the time, or or, or just maybe you had just out moved or something. Yeah, but uh, he he basically said he talked you into moving out here. Um, with that said, how do you know Danny? How do I know what? How do you know Danny? How did you guys? So Danny, uh, you know, I I think you probably know Danny's story, but Danny is friends with a lot of cops, believe it or not. Um, and so I met him through a retired lieutenant. Uh, from the NYPD and a retired detective through who was act, actually active at the time from LAPD. And they had a little thing going where uh, they called it Delta Bravo Exploration. I guess the DB is for Danny Boy. But they would go and find old movie film locations and do all sorts of cool shots, try to get access, talk to the people inside and stuff. So I had been interested in that and kind of an expert on locations in New York um, from going up there and so that's that was the intro and uh you know that was i guess started the ball rolling so based on your resume and the podcast you're starting in the series uh you seem to be somewhat friends with people that you have formerly arrested or have been acquainted with in the crime world my biggest question is that common for for police officers to have such that relationship or are you kind of a unique individual uh, there's a, there's a very, it's, I would say I'm, I'm, I'm unique. There's a crew of us out there who, well, 
I guess the way it starts, um, you know, it could be an informant. A lot of informants walk in the door. They want to give up a, a an adversary or they're in a jam. Uh, maybe it's ego, whatever. Uh, and, and sometimes those relationships can be maintained, but usually they're short-lived. But the way I developed these relationships is I was a member of several federal task forces. Um, primarily, I guess my longest run was with uh, the DEA in New York. Um, and then I did a few years with the Bureau. And I worked in a lot of federal task forces with so many agencies, the uh, Violent Apprehension Squad. Uh, but the way I started maneuvering through the federal system was, and, and being a casemaker was, you know, taking uh, shots at different organizations and trying to get people to flip, uh, arresting them on the lesser charges um, that they were doing in part of like a structured organization. It could be credit card fraud, different things, um, and picking people who were probably like violent predicate felons or at least had numerous felonies. And in the federal system, due to the uh, minimum mandatory sentencing, they were gonna have to do you know, long sentences and then convincing them to cooperate. And once a person decides to cooperate with the government, it's a long process. Um, you know, They get put in special housing, which is basically they're, they're isolated. Their families start having issues where they think they're being followed, they're getting threats. And you basically adopt a uh, dysfunctional family that you have to deal with. And there's a, there's a closeness that comes from constantly taking that person uh, out of the prison situation into in, you know, uh, interview rooms and going over the case over and over again, bringing them back out because she wants some clarity. Uh, what did you hear uh, on the streets through your telephone calls from the uh, correctional facility? And then the afterlife, you know, the, if they go into witness protection, there's usually a blackout period. Uh, they may or may not contact you, um, depending on how serious they take the program. And then those who opt out of the program are usually eager to relive the old days. You know, they don't, they can't talk to their old friends anymore. Um, and you're saying they want to get back? Well, they, they want to talk to us. They don't have anyone else to talk to. They really can't. They can only maybe reach out to one of those best friends who's not going to give them up. But when you go in the program or you go into hiding, you know, um, it's stressful and uh, it's limited the amount of contact you can have with people. Um, and then there are some guys who went back to the streets. They weren't afraid for whatever reason. And I maintain those relationships. Sometimes I sign them up as informants. Um, so they had protection and other times, you know, they would just call up and say, Hey, you know what I heard? This guy's dead or this guy got shot. And, um, yeah. So, uh, when, you know, it's a certain personality, you know, you have to have people have to like you, you have to like them. And, uh, there's plenty of people I dealt with that I, I, you know, prayed I never heard from again. And then there's the guys that just have the right personality, you know, they're sociopaths, but you know, they're, they're similar to us and, you know, they love their kids and families. We have a lot in common, except we choose to make money a different way, you know? Yeah. You, you said that, um, a lot of the people you arrested or took down, they almost understood that it was part of the business that sure. you were just doing your job and they were doing theirs and that's just part of it. Yeah. You know, uh, I, I, matter of fact, you know, it's funny. I grabbed a guy in a hotel room, the Lowe's hotel, Miami beach. He was in bed with a girl. We hit the door and uh, she started carrying on. And, uh, you know, he said the old, you know, hey, they're just doing their job. Stop. 
you know, uh, gentleman gangster kind of stuff. And that's the people that you want to arrest, the people who, uh, you know, they, they, they're leaders. You know, they realize it's a business and, um, you know, there's no reason to be adversarial in those situations. It doesn't do anybody any good. So those are the kind of crimes and organizations I like to, to go after. Um, but, of course, you got to start off a lot of times with the bottom feeders, the guys at the bottom who are just killers, who are just... Uh, you know, low-level hangers-on, and that's how you build your case and go up. So, now I think before we we started on on live, you mentioned from what I I think I understood that the traditional mob is almost going to be obsolete soon, or it is obsolete. Is that was that correct? <clears throat> or well, to a great degree, uh, organized crime has been decimated by the use of the RICO statutes, which probably started uh, in earnest back around 1980. Uh, with Rudy Giuliani when he was a U.S. attorney in the Southern District. And, um, you know, if, if you're part of a structured organization that there's a de facto leader and lieutenants and, um, you know, and, or, you know, you're in, a, you're in a gang and you commit violence and you, you say you're in a gang and there's a leader of the gang, you know, you're in a structured organization. And those laws apply and the sentencing is brutal. So... Um, nobody wants to be a made man because if you're a, you know, once you get made, you've really entered into a conspiracy. So that's been a big problem for the mob. And then, you know, crime has changed. Um, you know, there's plate readers everywhere. There's cameras everywhere. People have cell phones. It's so hard to get away with things. You know, can you imagine you put a body in a trunk and you're driving around, you, you know, the, they probably snagged your tag, at least in New York city, maybe 50 times driving 10 miles and everyone's and, got a camera in their hand and yeah so you know it's uh it's a tough um the world's tougher so it's chased a lot of the crime uh into the digital age uh different kinds of fraud uh, but you know they're still out there um there's still mobsters you know trying to deplete you know the health and welfare fund from a union or you know that's always been their kind of bread and butter was unions and construction. So they're still out there. They're just uh, a little bit more quiet. And the wars had killed the five families. Um, they fought with themselves. They fought with each other. And uh, it brought nothing but negative attention um, and, and aided in the, uh, the kind of end of the Italian mafia in New York. I try to hit some of the questions that I get from, from people uh, as we go down on that note. Um, seems like you've had a lot of experience with both traditional mob and modern day gangs. Mm-hmm. Um, any major differences there or any preference when, when working with those people is, is that a whole different life or are they similar? Just, just a different dynamic group. Well, there's, there seems to be more loyalty in the mob. You know, they have a structure. If, if you, you're an associate and you want to become a made member, you're kicking up, you're doing, you know, everything you can to, to become a, a, an active member. So you're doing everything you can out in the street. You're kicking up as much money as you can so you're noticed and appreciated as a money earner. Uh, once you get made, which is very difficult, usually you have to kill somebody or be a, be a big earner. Um, once you get made, now you have status. Nobody out in the street can touch you. No one can touch your family. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a big deal, you know, and then they're always trying to get their hands on, you know, the bigger scams, the more money, um, their code of silence, you can't cooperate, um, you know, 
uh, it's so then you go to urban neighborhoods where, you know, there might be like four or five uh, gangs within one housing project. They might be warring with each other. Um, you know, it's a little less structured in those situations. Um, I find that the gangs out west are a little bit more structured. Uh, but, you know, they seem to be in a constant state of violence with beefs and different things. So uh, there's a lot more kind of, I don't want to say out in the open, but more obvious uh, acts of violence that you can pick up on. And, you know, um, and that would, you know, kind of attribute uh, to your way into making, uh, you know, a conspiracy case on them. Um, but, yeah, no, there's, there's differences, but... Uh, they're in the the street gangs are enamored with the mob too, whether they're black, Hispanic, or Armenian or uh, Albanian. You know, they all kind of they they like that respect you get from being a mobster. And if you want to be a mobster, you want to be an Italian mobster. Let's face it; it's got the the best movies, the best history, um, and they had the longest and best run than any other organized group that I can think of. So. Where do you think our fascination with true crime comes from as far as, as people not involved in crime or gangs? Like, I don't know, you know, I was born in 90, you were working in 90, but right. um, was true crime a big thing on TV back then? Or is it something that has been the past 20, 30 years? I think uh, these shows, you know, um, you know, first it was probably like cops. And then you started getting, uh, you know, like these 48-hour type shows, you know, one or two-hour special leaves you hanging on every, you know, in the commercial and you think the case is dead and then they come back with, you know, another thing that leads them further and further uh, towards an arrest and a conviction. Those shows, I think, became popular in the 90s, you know. I don't remember them. I do uh, remember before. Cops as a kid, watching Cops. Yeah, I mean, Cops is all street stuff and I think they saw there's a market here, Um and then, you know, there's people that just love this stuff, uh, these, uh, you know, forensic shows and stuff. And that's not my thing. I like, uh, you know, I like the real, I like to know the stories behind people and the, you know, and, and the organized kind of stuff because it's more interesting. The different types of scams, like you wouldn't believe how many different scams are out there. It's just amazing how, you know, uh, inventive people can be when they want money. Yeah, I almost got scammed uh, around Christmas time. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, someone got into my bank uh, and and had added an, added an external account, mm -hmm. and then they tricked me in calling me, acting like it was my bank, but they called from my bank's number, quote unquote, mm -hmm. showed up on my phone, blew my mind. But um, can you tell us a little bit about how you got into being a police officer and, and what led you to do that? Yeah, so I grew up in New York, and uh, I was born in '62. My dad was a cop. Um, I was surrounded by cops most of my life. We vacationed with other families who were members of law enforcement. Uh, I think when I was about 10 years old, my father was on the cover of the Daily News behind a car with a couple of guys uh, shooting up at a building that was a sniper or something. You know, New York was one of those cities that was in complete disarray at the time. High crime, the city was bankrupt. We had serial killer, we had uh, numerous acts of arson in the poorest sections of New York that decimated the Bronx and, and areas in Brooklyn. And then you had like these, uh, so then I had the positive side of it for my family, but then you also had really good cop movies back then. Uh, the French Connection or a really great film. And this is, it, it didn't inspire me, but it certainly, uh, 
I carried that film with me for a long time, was a movie called The Seven Ups. And it was produced by a guy named Sonny Grasso, who the film The French Connection was based on. And he's basically, you know, good looking guy, leather jacket, driving a police car 100 miles an hour, shooting bad guys. And, um, you know, that's the life I wanted to live. I was like, man, I wish I could be that guy. And unfortunately, when you become a cop, you, you'll see that's, uh, that's a hard, you know, one, it's not like that. And two, uh, it's a hard road to get to that level where you're a plain clothes man with an unmarked, undetectable, you know, kind of cover car. And, um, but it is attainable, but in very, you know, small amounts of uh, the investigators that are out there. So. So how did you become the guy that started what they call the controversial rap police? So I was assigned to the DEA. I was assigned to a Colombian team and we made huge seizures of cocaine, powder cocaine. I was assigned to an, a Colombian group. Are you an undercover guy? Or? Um, no, we're just investigators. But, you know, we had high level informants. Some of them walked into the embassy, maybe in, you know, in Cali or uh, uh, came and approached the government, uh, particularly maybe, let's say, the DEA, and said, hey, look, I know where there's huge amounts of money. Um, and they would give up stash houses, and they would be rewarded uh, very well. And so we were doing really big cases. <clears throat> I think the first year I got there, we seized about six, 700 kilos of cocaine. The next year, it was about 1,000. And then in 19, I think it was 97, we seized over 2,500 kilos of cocaine that year, millions of dollars, cars, businesses. And it was a lot of fun. It's a cat and mouse game. You're putting tracking devices on cars. You're getting up. You're listening to their telephones, um, using translators for the most part. And you're out in the street and people are calling you say, hey, they're on the move. They're supposed to meet with some guy. He sounds important. And now you're out there with six, seven guys following people through the urban streets of New York, trying to keep up with them, trying not to get made. It was a lot of fun. Somewhere along the line, I got up on a telephone that was supposed to be dealing with a source of supply from Colombia. It was a Dominican male, and he was basically on his way down. He had a lot of problems, and he was dealing with drug dealers in Brooklyn who were affiliated with different rap artists, um, who were protected by drug gangs or tough guys. And, um, and Is I this Haitian Jack? Well, no, Haitian Jack actually was a robber. Haitian Jack robbed drug dealers. Um, but he's, he's um, memorialized in different songs. I think uh, one by Tupac, one by 50 Cent. Uh, but yeah, you know, so there's this world uh, that I was kind of fascinated that existed. And I made a decision that I kind of wanted to leave the world of uh, high-level, multi-kilo um, investigations and start looking at these guys on the streets. There was a lot of violence. There was a lot of rap beefs going on where, you know, guys would uh, be waiting outside a radio station for the artist to come out. And, uh, you know, sometimes the, the two different factions, they'd be, you know, having shootouts. Um you know, an argument might start off one of these diss songs and turn into something, um, you know, really uh, volatile with numerous acts of violence. Uh, but I saw that there were a lot of guys who were kind of terrorizing people in the rap industry, whether they were producers, whether they were artists. And they got their start in New York. Most of them will come from Brooklyn, but... Um, 
they were stash house robbers. They would go and rob drug dealers. They'd steal their drugs. They'd steal their money. And we're talking significant amounts of cash. And there was nothing you could do about it because, one, you know, you're, you're in an illegal trade. And two, these guys were so fierce and so their, their reputation and actions uh, put drug dealers in fear. And um, so it was kind of, uh, you know, only uh, natural that they would now see an opportunity uh, for this, you know, opportunity to extort, whether it's the friendly extortion game or the all out, give me money or I'm going to, you know, make your life miserable. Um, and some of the big players in New York would be a guy named Haitian Jack, uh, Jimmy Henchman, uh, Guy Walter Johnson, whose street name was, uh, oh, geez, what was this? Oh, Tut, King Tut. Uh, he was so crazy, he robbed his own congregation, uh, a Jehovah's Witness church in Brooklyn. He robbed the entire uh, congregation on one Sunday. He went Sunday. to church there and then robbed them? Yeah, well, his family went to church there, and he was a sociopath. So I guess he had <laughs> fleed from the flock and decided to return. Um, you know, so these guys were really bad guys. And uh, the rappers initially, people like Tupac and uh, the early guys out on the street, they came from the same streets that these guys were legends in. And at first, I think they liked it to have these guys around. Their, their music was about surviving the streets, hustling to survive. And these guys were like, you can't sing about us. You're not a hustler. You're nobody. You know, you want to sing about us, you got to pay homage to us. Give us cash. Uh, take care of us. Tickets to the show. We're going to come hang out with you. You're going to be in the club buying stuff. And, you know, if I like that uh, that $100,000 Rolex on your wrist, I'm probably going to take it from you. So, um, and then, you know, one guy in particular who was Haitian Jack, he kind of, uh, he had some charm. Uh, he'd be in places like uh, Star Island in Miami, Miami Beach area at all the hot clubs. He dated Madonna for a bit. Um, he started to legitimize himself to a point and he was known as a guy that if you had problems, you could go to Jack and, uh, he would take care of them. Uh, but that relationship came at a cost. He was going to ask you for money. He was going to ask you maybe to help manage an artist, uh, to invest, you know, some kind of investment where he was involved, but basically it was just to, you know, drain people of their, uh, of their money and give him, you know, a significant kind of, uh, you know, introduction to the industry. He insinuated himself into it and he did very well, but he was still, you know, a street guy, got into a lot of beefs. Uh, when people asked for help, you know, he helped them and usually with acts of violence. So uh, he was kind of a more notorious guy in the industry and <clears throat> I had arrested him on a couple of occasions. And uh, the first time I arrested him, I arrested him because he was a violent predicate felon before he could get citizenship. His family was from Haiti. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, um, you know, I told him, you're either going back to Haiti or you're going to, you know, help us out with what we need. And, uh, you know, he had no other choice. And then um, he didn't really so much act as an informant. But as somebody I, I kept close, kept an eye on, and occasionally would ask for a favor, like a telephone number of another bad guy who I was looking into, but I never wanted to burn him. Um, but he uh, 
broke the rules and got into a shootout. <laughs> Small uh, fraction. <laughs> yeah, in West Hollywood. And uh, there was a witness who knew who he was. And then I started getting calls. And I was like, oh, no, here we go. These are in, This is in the 90s? <clears throat> no, this was probably... Jack's final end in the United States was probably around 2005, maybe 2006, something like that. Okay. Uh, but his uh, his rise uh, probably comes out in the early 90s. Um, you know, it's hard thinking back on when rap got really big. But he, he kind of was one of the early guys in the industry. He was really tight with uh, Tupac. And, you know, uh, what happened was is... You know, everywhere Tupac went, they were there. Um, and uh, what they were getting out of him at the time, I don't know. I don't think Tupac particularly had a lot of money back then, but whatever he had, I'm sure he was, you know, pretty uh, loose with. And, um, you know, these guys saw an opportunity. But what happened was is they invited some girl from a club back to a hotel room. Uh, it was Jack, Tupac, uh, one other guy whose name I forget, and one guy I think who was never identified. This is in California? No, it was in New York. Um, this is the early, the early days. And uh, the girl was either raped or sexually assaulted, um, but they were arrested. And Jack chose a lawyer named Paul Brenner. Paul... Um, was a defense attorney. He also did a lot of cases for the different police unions in New York where cops needed a lawyer because, you know, they had been uh, arrested for maybe being overzealous or uh, in an arrest or maybe an off-duty situation like a DUI. And so he had that reputation. And Paul told uh, Jack, you better take a plea. And he did. And Tupac just uh, was mad that I think he maybe didn't, he set this girl up, but maybe he felt that, you know, he, he kind of talked himself into being somewhat innocent, uh, which isn't true, but, uh, and that these bad guys, you know, they're the ones who are the real bad guys and they're the ones who should be, you know, uh, taking this to trial just like me. And um, Jack took a plea and then Tupac went out and said, hey, he's, he's got a cop attorney. He must be a rat, which wasn't true. Um, and just before his sentencing, Tupac went to a club and met a writer named A.J. Benza and told him some stuff, um, probably, you know, not in confidence, but just in, in a normal part of a conversation. And it went into print. It basically alleged that uh, all his troubles came about with this guy, Haitian Jack, and Mike Tyson had warned him about him and uh, that he was out of his league. He shouldn't be hanging with these guys. And they got me jammed up. Um, so he is found guilty. He's supposed to go for sentencing. And before he goes for sentencing, he wants to make a little extra money. He's got to pay off lawyers. He needs some money out there for his, you know, his girlfriends, his mother, whoever. And so uh, he goes to do a track uh, for a guy named Little Sean um, at a place called Quad Studios. And when they get there, uh, they're met in the lobby by some gunmen uh, who start to rob Tupac. They want to take his watch, different things. 
Tupac goes for a gun, shoots himself in the groin a couple of times. These guys open fire. I don't even know if they hit Tupac, but they did hit another individual who was there. And they flee with some stuff. Um, and the reason that happened was it was just supposed to be a robbery, maybe a smackdown to teach him a lesson that you can't throw guys' names around like Haitian Jack. Um, the robbery supposedly, allegedly, was ordered by a guy named Jimmy Henchman, who was a cohort of Jack's. Um, and um, yeah, so, you know, these guys never cooperated. Police put together what they could. Uh, years later, more and more information came out about it. And, uh, you know, it's funny, uh, Jimmy Henchman ends up becoming a manager. And he managed people like The Game, uh, who was a pretty big artist. And uh, he ended up uh, inevitably... Um, was a manager who was also a cocaine trafficker and also a violent guy. And he got into this whole rap beef thing with 50 Cent and numerous acts of violence, murders, shootings. And it was a mess. So he's, he's serving life in prison now. Jack is, uh, after the shooting he was involved in, I don't even know if I did I talk about that, but he uh, he was with, uh, he was supposed to be a good boy and he was supposed to report to me, you know, anything that he, he, you know, uh, that law enforcement would be interested in. And he really didn't do that all that much and, uh, never really acted as an informant, but he was with a rapper named MC Light one evening. Some guys he had a beef with were in a club called Monroe's. They had words. He took MC Light outside, came back in and shot them. Uh, Haitian to, Jack shot them. Yeah, Haitian Jack shot them in the legs to teach them a lesson, you know. <laughs> so there was a an informant outside who I knew actually. Um, I, I had met. He was being controlled by somebody else, by an LA sheriff I knew. And he said, uh, "Yeah, Haitian Jack uh, just chased these guys around the club Monroe's and shot them." So he called me, and uh, I was like, "Oh Jesus, what are we going to do now?" You know. So. Um, you know, I had to get Jack to come in. And so I didn't want to call him like the day after. So I let it float for two or three weeks, let him feel comfortable. And then I told him, hey, uh, I need you to come out into LA. I got some stuff, you know, pictures I want you to look at and different things. And he came out and we jumped him in the lobby of uh, a Hyatt Hotel on the Sunset Strip. And he pled out to, I think, a gun charge on that case um, with the knowledge that he was going to be deported now why were you in la well i used to do cases uh you know the nypd we never really thought we had borders per se so uh <laughs> you know we followed people all around the country we met with different law enforcement or you know agencies all around the country or we just went out and did our own thing places mostly surveillance mostly to question people about you know different leads we had but i had teamed up with a uh a guy named Mark Gaiman from the LA Sheriff's. He was a detective with the Major Crimes Bureau. We hit it off. We had a lot of fun doing cases together. And we kind of combined our efforts to um, investigate uh, organized crime in the film, uh, television industry, and um, music industry. So we, we really had, um, uh, the intelligence we had from both sides was great. And um, yeah, we had a lot of, a lot of good times out there, a lot of good cases. Um, and I, I think that one case we did together, um, which had different facets and uh, sections to it, but uh, 
I think it lasted about seven years. So I was flying back and forth from New York to LA a lot. Sometimes Miami, that was probably our second most popular uh, stopover point. And um, uh, yeah, a lot of times we wanted to see with rappers who they were running around with. Um, sometimes we knew that a guy in an organization maybe had a warrant out for his arrest. Um, and we'd pull over their cars to find the guy uh, look around the vehicle where the guy was maybe, try to flip him, uh, try to get intel on what was going on. So, you know, we were busy nonstop. There was shootings all the time outside of uh, radio stations, outside of events. Uh, the silliest beefs in the world, you know, turned into violence because these guys needed protection from guys like Haitian Jack and Jimmy Henchman. So they had all sorts of bad guys from their hood uh with them and it caused nothing but trouble um the industry got real what happened though is when you know when tupac got out of prison um he got bailed out by suge knight um while he had an appeal and suge brought him over to death row records and you know suge wanted, suge wanted to keep him as an artist so uh you know he would he would get Tupac fired up about how the New York guys robbed him and, you know, made a fool out of him. And so Tupac started doing these dish tracks where, you know, he was calling out gangsters in New York by name and um, it started to get ugly. Um, the guys from Bad Boy Records, which is Puffy's label, decided not to really get into it. But other rap groups in New York weren't, you know, standing for it and they started to go back and forth. So... You know, it, it just was constantly, there was problems everywhere. So if you had like a, the Source Awards, the Vibe Awards, all these guys would show up. They all had beefs. They all had guys in their entourage who weren't, who weren't particularly good people. And so it was nonstop violence. And it kind of ends with the murders of Tupac and Biggie within about a year of each other. And, uh, you know, that was the beginning of law enforcement really looking into these guys and trying to quell the violence. And, you know, so there's so many interesting cases and things. And, um, but it's, it's not like it used to be. There's still beefs, but I, I mean, I don't, at least I don't hear about the violence that used to go on. Um, so it's changed to a certain degree. You think people are, are still maybe now beefing per se, but not so much violence and maybe not so much true acts, more of just for entertainment purposes? Yeah, well, you know, the, the industry has changed so much. Record labels don't really control these guys so much anymore. Um, there's a lot of independent labels. There's, it's so much easier now to, to have a budget to record something. Um, the digital age has changed it, there's, you know, changed things so much that there's less startup money. Um, you can do a lot of it on your own. Yeah, I mean, and what happens is, too, is, you know, they still have people running around with them. Everyone wants to take care of their friends they grew up with. And, um, you know, they, their egos get the best of them. Um, but, you know, the, the one war that, I, that was really bad war that I got involved in was between 50 Cent and the artists at Murder, Inc. Records. And I ended up doing a, a case that led to a death penalty RICO case in the Eastern District of New York. Um, basically what would happen was, is, uh, 50 cent was, you know, low level street kind of dealer. Um, this is before he was big, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. This is, you know, South Jamaica, Queens. Um, I don't even know, know whatever it is. It's gotta be, I guess, 
mid to late nineties or so, he starts to become, you know, uh, a guy who's selling a lot of mixtapes out on the street, uh, is making a name for himself. Uh, he put out a diss track, uh, called how to rob. And the song goes into detail about how he would, was going to rob all these different members of these, uh, popular artists in the rap industry, making fools that are making fun of them. And uh, they were all mad and uh, wanted revenge and started singing about him. So it was a great um, public relations technique in that it propelled him um, overnight into stardom, but he still didn't have a record deal. Um, So there was a record label called Murder Inc. Records and they had uh, they paid homage to a famous one of the most famous uh, street uh, narcotics uh, distributor named Kenneth Supreme uh, McGriff, and he had a very violent uh, drug trafficking drug trafficking organization called the Supreme Team. This was a gangbanger or a rapper? No, uh, McGriff is a was a. Uh, um, I, would, I wouldn't call him a gang member, uh, although it was somewhat of a gang, but he was a multi-kilo drug trafficker who also controlled different housing projects in Queens, New York that distributed crack cocaine. He made you know hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions, I'm sure, and um, had some really violent guys in his organization. And he, was, he went to jail for a bit. When he came out, these guys from Murder, Inc. Records, Irv Gotti, um, his artist, Ja Rule, Shanti, different people, um, they were enamored with, with him. Uh, he's a street legend in New York. And so, yeah, hey, come hang out with us. And, you know, it's nice to have a guy like that with those street creds that, you know, prevents you from being preyed upon. Uh, the problem was is that 50 Cent didn't respect uh, Supreme. He warned him to stop taking shots at his... Uh, his labels, uh, artists, Ja Rule, they had a number of street beefs and, uh, you know, different things happened. And after he refused to comply with McGriff um, and kept going after Ja Rule, uh, McGriff and several of the men waited for him one day. Um, they got, a, I think they got tipped off, but they ended up shooting him nine times. They thought he was dead and uh, he ended up... Uh, surviving and um that's when i i began to realize that you know when i started getting tips about it that supreme and this record label were out of control you know um the label had to know what was going on uh they were on top of their game and why they would ever hook up with this guy at least at the level they did and let him handle a rap beef with violence is insane and it brought heat onto the company and um, the cases we did on Murder, Inc. Records and Supreme basically decimated the label. It ruined the careers of Ja Rule, Ashanti, Cadillac Ta, all these different people on the label uh, because the industry knew that they were responsible in some way for, for the shooting of 50 Cent, threatening other labels that if they gave 50 Cent a recording contract, uh, they would do things to them, whether it was business, they would uh, sever business ties, uh, get them blackballed, or maybe even uh, bigger like threats to them, uh, threats of violence. So um, yeah, so that that's a beef that turned into a record label losing everything, 
losing their stature in the industry, uh, destroying their artist's career. And it ended up with me putting McGriff uh, in jail and his prosecution, uh, his successful prosecution, led to life sentences. And uh, yeah, so he's done. The record label is done. And it's a, a testament to why you don't invite bad guys into your life, you know. So, so the night that Fifty Cent got shot, you were you part of the team that res, that uh, arrested? No, McGriff? no. So we, we did. We were doing long term investigations. You know, we, we were like, you know, a bit more sophisticated. We're not street guys per se. We all came from the street as invest as young cops and and uh, you know street detectives doing like you know robbery squad work and things like that. But no, this is all long term investigations. The use of informants, arresting people on the bottom, and building a case and getting to the truth um, of what happened. So, so yours is a long-term goal. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think that case started in 2000. We didn't finish it. The conviction didn't come about until I think 2006. So you dedicated the shooting of him, hmm? the shooting of him or which well, conviction? No, a, a Rico case that, oh, okay. was, that included the, the shooting and, uh, some murders and drug trafficking and other acts. So am I making this up or on one of your podcasts? Did you say that uh, 50 cent would not comply? Oh yeah, no, he, he did not want to, uh, he did not want to uh, cooperate at all. What is uh, that? What is cooperate with what? Like well, if someone shot investigation, you, like, yeah, I, can I'm you a, elaborate more on? He, well, yeah, you know, I'm a victim, but I, I live by the code of the streets. Uh, thank you. I appreciate your help, but, um, no, I'm not going to tell you, basically tell you anything, you know? So, um, and it's true. He, if, if he had cooperated with us, his career would have been dead and that would have been the end of it. So. Because he would have been considered an informant or yeah, a rat or whatever. So even if he gets shot, you can't you can't talk. Wow, props to him for yeah. stick. I don't know. I feel like if I feel like it would end for me when I almost died, that I'd be like, all right, I got to switch now. But of course, that changed his whole life. Yeah. Well, and, he's uh, tough. He's a tough kid, you know, and he's a smart kid, and he reinvented himself several times. Even he made really good investments. He's producing television shows yeah, now. He's doing everything. Yeah, I mean, he's smarter than the guys who tried to stop his career. And once that album "Get Rich or Die Trying" came out, that was it. He was a legend after that. Um, and you know, he's got a good reputation. Um, you know, he can be a bit of a pain in the ass. Uh, his this guy Tony Ayo is with him. Is another guy who's always shooting his mouth off. Um, but they got good personalities in a way, you know, it's, um, they make the whole kind of industry thing a little interesting, but in the past they were also involved in a lot of violence because a lot of people were going after them, whether it was to attempt to extort from them, uh, you know, or whatever. Um, yeah, no, those guys survived a lot of different shootings and, uh, and different things. Um, you know, when people see 50 cent on TV, they don't necessarily know um how many times those guys survived being uh you know shot at by guys like jimmy henchman another guy world who was really big in, in brooklyn shot it out with them one night um a lot of violence in that industry and it's all kind of gone you hear about stuff occasionally you hear about rappers who are involved with drug guys and different things um thinking that they're you know some of them are legitimate you know street guys who uh have a gift in the rap industry but you know, if you don't walk away from that life, it's going to come back and haunt you. So, are you ever were you ever chasing these guys and investigating these guys long term, but uh, listening to the music that they're putting out at the same time? Yeah, you know, like so. If you're um, even a rap guy, 
Yeah, no. So I'm I'm a big music guy. I like I have an eclectic taste in in music, and I always kind of like groups like. Uh, well, 50 Cent, I, that, I thought that one album we did was great, but I liked, you know, these really crazy bands like N.W.A., you know, singing about all this violent stuff. It, you know, I, I didn't necessarily like their sentiments about the police, but, you know, they looked cool. They, they, you know, the songs were, you know, they were violent and crazy, but they were doing something much different than anyone else. And there's groups like uh, Public Enemy, Wu-Tang Clan, you know, there's this, they're very interesting people. Um, and uh, you know they're singing about things that are somewhat interesting, life on the streets, things that I know about. Um, yeah, and there's people in the industry I, I don't I, I don't like um, that I you know I've heard them speak. Um, I've done cases where they've come up and not necessarily anything I could prove, but um, yeah, I didn't like them. I thought they were bullies or stupid or whatever. Uh, guys like Fat Joe. Benzino, you know, they all talk shit, excuse my French. Sure. And uh, yeah, so, um, <clears throat> you know, I had my favorites, but the law is the law. And, you know, if we had a crime, uh, you know, we were going to try to, we were going to try to get you. So I always found it interesting too, because it, it seems like you'd be the type of guy as well that, uh, you know, doesn't, doesn't hold that against these people to an extent because uh, clearly they grew up very differently than you did. Mm -hmm. and, and maybe, uh, had a big reason for some, at one point to hate the police and, and maybe they were taught that at a young age and clearly that's probably not correct but you know you grew up sounds like with yeah. a good mentor and a police officer family where these guys might have grown up with with people who uh, were arrested by the police or, or, or doing things well, that yeah well yes and no uh, yes they grew up much different um, so like Ice Cube for example well, well Ice Cube is kind of a middle class kid was it? No, yeah, yeah. Ice Cube was. I mean, Ice Cube went to like a good school and everything else. That but yeah, he, you know, he had it. He, he's he's a bad example actually, because he is one of those guys that. Um, well, he seems like he's changed a lot now too. Well, it's not like he really changed. I don't think he was really. A, he was never really a street street guy doing bad bad things or anything like that. Um, he certainly could sing about it. He lived near it or in it, but he wasn't. He wasn't a gangbanger really. Um, so why would he be a part of the group? So, you know, writing F the police because it's entertainment, you know, and maybe it's the way he felt, you know, but the thing is this, is that, you know, in the urban environment, um, you know, poor neighborhoods where a lot of, a lot of rap comes out of, not necessarily the majority of it, but a lot of it comes out of there. And, you know, people who live in poverty sometimes see the drug economy as a, as a means to get out. Um, you know, the police are the enemy. They're coming in. They're going to try to arrest you. They're going to try to put you in, 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 uh, in jail and, you know, want you to get the appropriate sentence for your crimes. And, you know, you don't necessarily have to be a bad person and be in that, in that crime and in, in, into crime, uh, but you're accountable. And so when you get caught, you know, you're going to, you're going to do the time. And in that era, there was a lot of money to be made out on the street doing it. I don't think they thought about the consequences that you were ruining people's lives who were using the drugs there was a lot of violence attached to their drugs you can get robbed you could have competition from other uh drug dealers street beefs shootouts um you know the jail time and um yeah i mean it's a it, it's a game that you'll lose unless you get out one day and decide never to, to return but yeah so 
also the police in poor neighborhoods are the representatives of the government and they're pissed off at you know a lot of the lack of maybe what they perceive to be services and different things that they they should have they're frustrated and um yeah, the police are an easy target for their animosity towards the government. Um, you know, you can't sing songs like, uh, you know, F the mayor, you know, so, you know what I mean? So, so uh, it's those guys who are busting your chops. Screw yeah. the fireman. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I mean, you know, but sure, I get it. I think everyone gets it. But you know what? No matter what, you're accountable for your actions on the street. And um, there's... Uh, you know, there's always going to be a case where a cop goes overboard and then they think, well, the cops are overboard all the time. And, you know, it's not really legitimate. And while I'll, you know, um, I'll always defend the police because I knew that 99% of the guys I worked with were honest. And, you know, people make mistakes and, and things happen. But for the most part, uh, guys didn't go to work looking to violate people's civil rights and things like that. Some guys were wilder than others, for sure. Same thing goes for bad guys. Some guys are gentlemen. Some guys just they want to they want to run. They want to fight over the most, you know, the silliest of things and low low level crime. So, um, you know, we could all we, we could criticize each other on both sides of the law. But at the end of the day, um, you know, it, it is what it is. And I think that things have changed for the better. Um, you know, uh, I think you know there's a lot of political uh, things, uh, uh, you know, at play where people try to exploit. Uh, tragedies and um, you know it's just kind of uh, silly people fall for it on both sides and um, you know but cops and and street guys and uh, you know EMTs people are out there they know what really goes on and they should actually ask us our opinion you know we we'd be able to put things straight to you know we know what works social services and what doesn't and uh you know, unfortunately, uh, politicians and academics seem to run the world and they don't know what it's like out on the streets. So that's probably the best short answer you could have ever given. Like, well, you can't write a song called F the mayor, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's got, no, it's got to be yeah. the police. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about your show. It's, it's pretty new. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken. Right. Yeah. So, uh, I guess I only, you know, I always had the idea years ago, I, I guess in about 2010, what year did you retire? I retired, so I retired in 2007. I went overseas for a bit and I worked in the Middle East. I came back a couple of years later and I started working for different uh, investigative agencies and task forces for the city of New York. Um, most of them involved organized crime in uh, construction, private sanitation, uh, unions, things of that nature. So I got back in the game, but at a different level, and I was a boss for most of it. I ran the investigative unit for one agency for a pretty long, <clears throat> pretty long time. And um, this is after retiring. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, so twenty-five with the PD, and then another, what was seven or eight with these other guys, and uh, they were task forces. We had the NYPD, we had Feds working with us. And, uh, you know, we had money to uh, do a long-term investigation. So I stayed in the game and um, started doing a lot more uh, Italian mob cases, Genovese family cases. So um, with that being said, with, with that experience, with the amount of people I cooperated, the amount of people who I uh, maintain relationships with uh, on the good side and the bad side, um, I decided that, 
you know, all these shows that are out there now with these mobsters and all these guys now talking about old beefs that happened in the rap industry. I have so much inside stuff um, that will kind of really, uh, you know, uh, wake up the neighborhood when I start talking about it. So uh, I started off slow. Uh, my first show was, uh, it's called The Proffer. Um, a proffer agreement in the federal or state systems means uh, law enforcement prosecutor invites a potential, um, you know, a, a person of, of interest, um, usually a defendant who's already arrested, and gives them the opportunity to sit down and talk um, with immunity that they can say anything they want in that room and it can't be used against them with one exception and that is if they change their story, um, if they testify on the stand and t tell a different story that they told that day, then we can reveal that there was a proffer and that that's not what they said the first time around. So um, I had done so many proffers I mean, I don't even know how many I did over the years, trying to flip guys, um, getting guys to flip. And, um, you when know, you say I say flip, you're saying like become an informant? Yeah, yeah, to cooperate with the government, to either testify, give information. Um, and anyway, so, uh, you know, I saw that the, all these guys in organized crime, now they have their own shows, they're all, um, some of them are legit gangsters, some of them are nobodies. Um, some of them fabricate stories, others tell the truth. Um, most of them cooperated. That's how they are able to speak freely to their past because they have coverage for their past crimes. Um, then there's a few guys out there who don't, who just taunt these guys, call them rats and everything else. But I say for like the past two or three years, this has really kicked off big. They have huge followings. They're generating a lot of income on YouTube, Patreon, public appearances, and most of them are full of shit. So I know guys who aren't, and uh, I decided that you know the, it would be more interesting to have a show with a seasoned investigator or agent and a real crook, a real mobster. And when we have these conversations, I know exactly what they're talking about with terminology. I know a lot of the players they're talking about. And I can add to the conversation. You can tell me about an incident and I can tell you, well, one of the guys was there. I had a case on and whatever. So um, right now we have about five or six in, in, the, in the can and we put two out. The first one is an old friend of mine who uh, was an assistant to David Chase on the television show The Sopranos, and he has a really great story uh, about the ins and outs of, outs of the program, uh, uh, and not the, the program, meaning the television show. Um, really interesting stuff. Um, it sticks with the mob crime kind of thing, the theme. And the second show that I put out uh, was about the Biggie and Tupac investigation. Um, my knowledge and was used by LA with a lot of street guys I knew we you know we we uh whether it was uh one of the guys responsible for Tupac's death who was a New Yorker or just you know uh sharing intelligence we um the episode we did with uh Detective Greg Kading retired from LAPD uh gives you the inside and out of uh those two homicides 
So it's of great interest now because Puffy was a part of that investigation. He's in all sorts of trouble, and a guy named Keefe D uh, was recently arrested by the La De Vegas Metro Police for the murder of Tupac. So it's a lot of current stuff that that was just a couple of months ago, right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so we're giving we're giving the backstory on it and. Um, whether or not there's real prosecutorial merit to that case, I don't know. I have an opinion on it that I'm really not going to say now because I don't want to get anyone mad at me. Um, but I, I don't think it's such a strong case as everyone thinks. Um, yeah, so um, I have a guy named Gene Borello who I filmed a, a, a show with. Gene was kind of a low-level guy, a street guy, but a crazy guy. Uh, who like shot up half of Queens for about five or six years and did a bit of jail time. Um, I have a, you know, uh, a girl whose parents I arrested for, and got sentenced to multiple life sentences. She agreed to come on and speak to her life without her parents. Uh, I have another show with a famous prosecutor from the Manhattan DA's office who had really, really top news noteworthy, shocking kind of cases during the violent era of New York in the early 90s. Uh, I have a, several people go, coming out to do shows. I'm going to travel some of them. Uh, guys like Michael Frances, who I've known for years, agreed to uh, do something with me. I don't know. Michael's huge, right? Michael's huge. He I've, has I've, like... I remember seeing his stuff, uh, I feel like six, seven years ago. He's yeah. everywhere. So I met Michael about, uh, I think around 2010, um, I was retired. He had been out of prison and was no longer in that life. And, uh, so it was nice to meet someone and on, on those terms. And I, I appeared on a television show that he had called the history of the mafia. And, um, and so it was, he was a nice guy. And then I watched him take a career as a born again Christian who, um, would do speaking engagements at various ministries around the country. There were men's meetings, um, and he was sharing his experience and his, um, you know, his faith, um, to different men around the country. And, you know, he made good money on his speaking engagements and then he started to address his past life. Now and, you, you didn't know Michael while he was an active criminal. No. Um, I had some cases going on Michael's brother, John. That's another story. Um, I did a lot of work out in LA, but yeah, Michael, you know, Michael's one of those guys. He legitimately, um, you know, changed his life. Um, you know, his story is too long to tell, <clears throat> but he's a very likable guy. He's a smart guy. He's a great public speaker. Um, uh, really, really good guy. Um, so if a guy like that can get, you know, shit together, anybody can, you know, and, and uh, he's confirmed to come on your show. Yeah. Um, uh, well, we, we texted each other back and forth and yeah, we're going to do something. Um, you know, Michael is, he's the top of the game. So, you know, I'm, I'm beholden to whatever he wants. He doesn't need me. I need him. So yeah, yeah. hopefully he'll be gracious with his time. All of but his we, content is great. Yeah. We do have a relationship, um, you know, in, from the past doing some work together on, on a documentary and, um, yeah, no, um, uh, real, real good guy. Um, did I tell you about Anthony Ruggiano I have coming out? On the 22nd of February, we're going to do uh, the podcast at Church Studios. And after it's over, we're going to do a live event at the Venue Shrine on the 22nd. Doors at 7. 
show at eight and we're just gonna i'm just gonna interview uh anthony about his life in the gambino crime family uh he's another guy uh not a born again per se but a guy who had uh, a life with addiction issues who uh, embraced narcotics anonymous became an alcoholism and drug counselor and speaks about his past and um, his cooperation with the government um, during an era of the mafia where they no longer protected you, your family, they didn't help anybody out and caused him, um, you know, his back was against the wall and he, he basically cooperated to save um, his life and his, his family. So, um yeah, a lot of interesting stuff. Now, I have a lot of people on the back burner, too. Uh, really interesting, really violent guys who want to come on. Uh, detective I used to work with, um, I told him I was moving out to Tulsa. And he said, you know, my family is originally from Tulsa. And their, uh, their business was burnt down. They, they, uh, his name was Wendell Stratford, and his family owned the Stratford Hotel over at Black Wall Street, and it was burnt down during the race massacre. And Wendell's going to come out and talk about his career in the um, doing mostly cold cases. Um, had a lot of um, you know real real big time cases. Um, yeah, a, a really great detective, good guy. So um, yeah, it's it's varying. You know, I'm not just covering the theme of you know mobsters and cops, and and two you know we're willing to take a step towards some of the uh some of the other things that are going on out there as long as they're interesting and as long as i i can get a tie uh to organized crime or just crime i'll be happy and yeah so um i got a real big rapper who says he might do it i'm in negotiations can you uh, give names i can't give the name because one, if he doesn't show up, I'm going to feel like a fool. And two, I don't think he wants anyone to know. Because if he decides not to do it, it might be a thing where you know he just wouldn't want anyone to know. Big rapper currently or previous? Um, uh, I don't know what he does these days, but one of the most famous guys, yeah. So um, I'm gonna I'm gonna be, make that a big secret, so everyone's gonna have to watch my podcast, right? So um, <laughs> well, I want to ask before we go too deep. You said that. Uh, because I saw tickets for the previous one. Uh, was I felt like it was two or three weeks ago, maybe. Yeah. Uh, but are you, you're doing a podcast yourself and then interviewing them in front of a live audience after with just a little Q&A? Is that how that works? Or? Yeah, so, so we do the video podcast and uh, yeah, we did, then we pick a venue um, and um, do something similar to, it's not filmed or, or recorded, but we do something similar where I'll, I'll interview them and have a conversation with them, and then we'll, we offer the uh, the audience, uh, you know, a, a Q&A period where they can, you know, ask some really, you know, um, good questions, and, and they'll get, like, honest responses. And um, everything you needed to know about the Italian mafia, this guy knows. So he was born into it. His father was uh, this, fat. And this is yeah. coming up when? This is coming up on the 22nd, February 22nd at the Shrine. Where can we Where can we get tickets? Tickets, you can go on the Shrine's website and uh, they're on sale through, uh, I think it's like Stubwire or something. But yeah, just go to the Shrine's website and uh, it's, his name is Anthony Ruggiano. Um, and is this, the, is this your first one with a live audience? This is going to be my second live audience, but my first Italian-American uh, member of La Cosa Nostra. Yeah, and this is going to be the first live uh, public viewing for that. 
because because you know there's some podcasts where they do it they do it live but there's an audience while they do the podcast so i wasn't right. sure so yeah no do... i don't i don't like that because yeah. the, uh, the sound is always a little off sure and, yeah no uh, but so that's why i i like the uh i like watching podcasts with um the video is nice the sound has to be good the background you know uh, helps and so the places i've been doing it uh, fit all those needs, but church studios is such a cool place and they've been really good to me. Um, so I, I love those guys and, um, yeah. And my friend Donnie owns the, the shrine and, um, I had filmed the first two episodes there, uh, with my own crew and, um, you know, it gets really expensive. And uh, so I found a better home. So the 20, is that a Thursday night? It looks like that is a Thursday night. Yeah. Seven o'clock. I think it's 10, uh, tickets to 10 online, 15 at the door. Uh, we may have a, if Anthony is up to it, we're definitely going to offer a uh, meet and greet pictures together. Uh, whatever. He has a huge following. So if you have a chance look for, uh, Anthony Ruggiano and he has, uh, I think he calls his show Reformed Gangsters. And so he speaks to other guys in the life who also, um, you know, cooperated, started life anew. He's been on Michael Francais' show. He's been on Sammy the Bull Gravano show and others. Uh, he invites other members of uh, his crew, uh, lower level guys, but guys who had, um, he worked with out on the street, um, who you know they don't have anything to worry about these days they chose another path or the kind of life is over for them so they can they can reminisce without really worrying so he's an interesting guy fun guy and uh yeah hopefully that goes well can you uh, talk about some of your long-term goals with that show i know you mentioned trying to pitch that to maybe yeah i to mean make it big and, and and yeah i mean you know you got to look for a tv show that has a tv station a cable station production company that uh, you know, does stuff a little bit different than other people like Vice TV, maybe, or whatever. Uh, I have a lot of contacts out in Hollywood uh, from my past investigations and just reputations. So, um, yeah, um, I want to pitch, like, after I have, like, uh, five out and uh, shows that are out and being viewed by the public, um, hopefully get a good following, and hopefully they'll like um, what we have, but you know, there's a good market out there in Patreon and everywhere else where people, um, you can give the people online the ability to ask questions and get answers and things like that. So, um, yeah, I mean, either way for me, this has been a lot of fun. I'm kind of revisiting the past. Um, you Minus know, the editing, you know, it's not ego. It's not like, I think I'm going to make, make money off of this or whatever. It's, it's a lot of fun and it's something that no one else is doing. So, um, yeah, I don't want to be a copycat and, um, yeah, I want to be my own guy and just, um, uh, and, you know, take advantage of the stories I have. And, you know, once I start putting this rap stuff out, it's really going to be kind of interesting because I have a lot of inside knowledge that people that's never been talked about. Um, yeah, I, I did want to, we were talking about it earlier. I wanted you to, to dive into that as much as you can. You were talking about, uh, sport, sports betting and, and just some yeah. things that's going to maybe stir up some stuff if you can hit on it at all. Yeah. So, you know, years ago, the mob made money with point shaving scams and things like that. And, um, you know, there's, there's, if, if you can get to a professional ball player, you know, man, you got it made. 
if they get caught doing it, they're they're done. Uh, so it's a little risky. But I had I had got information from a bookie who we had some evidence against, uh, who was dealing with some people in the recording industry. I'm not going to say who they were, but he said on three occasions they made bets with him. Uh, a bookie where, and someone in music. No, a bookie meaning a a, a guy who takes bets from. Well, but a bookie and a guy in the music business were making bets against yeah, each yeah, other. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um, yeah, so they were betting the over on some basketball games, and they have to score a certain amount of points. Um, so um, if you bet the points on it, the over, whatever it is, they um, um, let's say it's a combination. I don't know, two hundred points. I forget how you know exactly how the scam worked. But I came across it in my folder, and it's basically getting famous ball players to uh, score as many points as they can to hit that goal, that that amount of points they need. And uh, it, if the bookie told us if we pulled the uh, actual events, the games, the footage, you will see that a team with a healthy lead, um, who really can ride out the last three or four minutes of the game you will see certain players running back and forth as fast as they can trying to hit the points <laughs> so these guys get it. And when they did hit the points, uh, one walk, uh, ran by them and made the, the sign, the gang kind of sign that they use. Another guy apparently jumped up in the stands and hugged them, or you see them hugging each other in the audience. They just hit big on their bets. Really? And yeah. So Is this uh, in the 90s? Uh, I would say early two thousands, maybe. Um, yeah. So, could you show me on YouTube? Could you show uh, me? No, you... I don't. I've never got the footage. Oh, so they're just talking about? Yeah, it, but I mean, you never you saw. Know, you had... I'll, I'll get. You know, if somebody with more time than I have, maybe they, they can go find the footage. But uh, like yeah, maybe off record, tell me a game or something I could look up. Yeah, that'd be kind of hard. It'd be easier nowadays, but. Well, yeah, be yes, and, to see. yes and no, but you know, somebody always has footage somewhere, right? Yeah. You might have to pay for it or something to get it, but I'm sure it's out there. Yeah. Do you think with uh, legalized sports betting, that stuff is kind of dying off a lot more than it used to be? Cause, no, cause because now you can bet legally in like half, half the U S well, no, I mean, it's not so much that, um, well, it's not the bet. It's the, it's the not fixing. the bet. It's the, it's the how to manipulate it. Do you think that's still alive and well? I would assume so. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think it ever was at any. You know, I don't think it's it's widespread, but you'll hear all the time people have these conspiracies, whether they're true or not. That, you know, when a when a football team hits those last few points, like why did they need to do it, or Man. you know, whatever. People see things that maybe I don't, or you don't, or when you watch some of those games and you see the lines, it's. I don't know. It's a little tough, man. It gets a little hairy. Yeah, I think when something's obvious, I don't believe it. But, you know, that's me. And, uh, uh, yeah, give me some evidence, and I'd be glad to talk about it. But, you know. So I I had a guy on my show. Do you, are you an MMA guy at all? I know a lot about it. I know about the startup of MMA. I was actually asked to look into um, the guys who started it out in, I think it was Vegas years ago. Because everyone thought they were organized crime guys, and they really weren't. So, is it the Fertitas? Yes, yes. Everyone thought because of their name and everything else, they had to be mobsters. And somebody, I think, was, I think they were investing money in it or whatever. And I got a call from some guys who represented them and wanted me to ask around through the organized crime world if they were anybody. And the answer was no. So, they're, to my knowledge, filthy rich from owning all the 
they own multiple casinos. They own station casinos in yeah, Vegas, yeah, yeah. which is like a dozen properties. Well, and that's always been one of those things. If you're involved in casinos, you have to be organized crime. But, you know, um, the that's not true because the uh, the gaming commission in Vegas does a very good job vetting people's licenses and stuff but if you put it all together and you're gonna you're gonna dump money into a company and go oh yeah these guys own casinos and they, this is their name and you know you want to do your due diligence that you're not being robbed by somebody this isn't a fake investment so they checked else. out clean but anyway yeah going back to the mma you know yeah so um through a friend of a friend i had on the podcast and met several years ago um i had a guy on the show that i followed for a while a former fighter um Got into got into sports betting, and and this is where it gets hairy because um, was public with it, and 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 was an was still an active fighter. And you know, fighting it's not like football; mm-hmm. you don't have a game every Sunday. You fight; you could fight once a year, you could fight once every six months. Sure. You could, so he was a active fighter on the back end of his career, um, but he also owned a gym and was a coach, a very prominent coach. He was on the Ultimate Fighter years ago, so has starts talk, you know talking about betting talking about who to bet on fighters very public which which it seemed like you know NFL guys are getting popped for betting and they're and they're getting suspended NBA guys are doing it college guys are getting caught betting on the phone and they can't do it well in MMA and UFC it seemed like this gray area because you know Floyd Mayweather bets on boxing all the time or he used to I don't know if he does anymore right. but fighters were betting on it as well and it seemed like it was okay they were you know it was on their YouTube it didn't seem like a big deal well when it got like to be a big deal for James who I've had on the podcast who's obviously he's, he's now went off the record because he's probably still under investigation but um, he started a uh, oh gosh what's the uh, like a streaming service where you can t- a discord like kind of okay. like a group chat you know, charging $20 a month for betting tips. Mm-hmm. But it, it seemed great because he's a coach and coaches active fighters and, and still knows the game, right? But it was still public. Well, it got hairy whenever one of his fighters uh, seemed to, to go into the fight hurt mm-hmm. and the the commissions, whatever you call them, the gaming commissions, um, after the fight had happened, Notice a huge swing and influx of bets on the fight specifically to end a certain way, which is in round one and by KO, TKO. So James's fighter goes in there and loses in like 50 seconds. If you go back and watch the clip, which I could show you this one, right, right. doesn't looks like he's hurt, doesn't look like he really tries a lot, loses in 50 seconds. So they go back and watch the tape. And they look at all these bets. I guess there was a very, very large number on, and this was not a big name guy. You know, you're not betting on on Conor McGregor. Uh, he, you know, he probably gets billions of bets. This is a, a guy on the prelims. So James, guy who I had on here a couple years ago, who I was very fond of, um, still am, but um, he's he seems to be in some serious trouble. Uh-huh. And that was the first, to my knowledge, one of the first bigger cases of a guy an active guy getting caught and busted like that. And, and when that happened a week later, all he, he used to have a YouTube channel and Instagram, it's all gone. And that's been, I'm paraphrasing, but that's been a, almost two years ago, I want to say, and you haven't heard anything about it. Yeah. Well, you know what? Sometimes, uh, sometimes, you know, something happened, but there's no, there's, there's no corroborating evidence or, you know, um, yeah, no, I, I had, you know, we had to walk away from cases at time. We knew, you know, um, we weren't going to be able to get 
what we needed to put it over the top. But, you know, you revisit stuff. And once you get involved in, in you know, and, and, you know, these are allegations. But once you get involved in bad things, you know, you never know if someone's going to step forward who can corroborate that information and, you know, put you in a bad position five, ten years later, you know, so. Did you find it interesting or watch the, the documentary on the, the NBA ref? I think he was an East Coast guy. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Tim? That's, yes, yes. That's a while ago, right? Oh, yeah. I think that was, yeah. I think it was early 2000s. Yeah, that was, yeah. Um, his, yeah. Was, his was, in, his case was interesting. Well, it's all interesting, but his was refing and then a guy was saying, you know, he started out giving inside information and um, just stuff he picked up as a ref. He knows, hey, you know. Kobe's playing tonight. Kobe's playing against the Knicks. Every time mm -hmm. he plays the Knicks, they draw this ref. This ref is more lenient. He's more hard. You know, he's going to get a lot of fouls. Right. It started out as little tips, and then it sounded like um, he started going down the deep end and got in. The way they caught him, to my understanding, was got connected with a guy in the mob, and they were chasing him, and phone calls picked up, and they said, why does this name sound familiar? They're talking mm -hmm. about basketball. And who's this Tim guy? And they find out, and he's a ref. And right. that's how he got caught. Yeah, you know, there's all sorts of scams out there. Uh, Henry Hill of Goodfellas fame uh, was involved in one of the scandals with college ball in Boston. I know Michael Frances speaks to it often. Um, I think Michael actually years ago used to speak to uh, players at NCAA. They'd sponsor events where he would talk to them and said, hey, you know, you're going to be approached to do things. And... You know, if you do, you're going to ruin your life. So, um, yeah, no. It Listen, if there's gambling brings a lot of problems. You know, you open up a casino, there's nothing but problems. Uh, you, you know, you have sporting events. People are going to bet on it. People are going to try to manipulate it. Uh, you know, that's that's just it. There's a lot of money to be made with uh, with fraud. So, um, so you're sure you've got five guys on deck. You're going to film it. You're going to do some traveling. Um, yeah. And you seem to be having fun with it. Yeah. You know, it's fun. I, I'm calling guys I used to work with. We're, we're, they're shocked to hear from me. You know, like some guys you just never hear from again because I dealt with so many people. So I have an FBA, FBI agent uh, who's going to come out and do the show. He was a behavioral science guy doing like serial killers at the end of his career. Um, I got one of the most violent hitmen in the history of uh, the black mafia in new york who's going to come out it's just so much good stuff give so. name there or no name hmm? no name yet or i'm not going to put his name out there yet because uh i think he would want to promote it before i did so how is how is a guy like that still on the streets how is he is he, he had a he had a cooperation flipped? agreement i think even though with his cooperation agreement he had to do about 20 years he was a really um, oh my gosh really bad guy um, but you know, he's out of jail a while now. He's probably my age. He's been out of jail. I don't know how many years and he ain't, he's not doing anything. So, um, when you know, I'm meaning he's not, you know, committing crimes. So. Yeah. When, when you say you maintain a relationship with these guys, how does, how does that work? How, well, how do you so, maintain I mean, a... well, you know, they put their phone number in their phone and I have theirs and <clears throat> you know, sometimes things come up and you're like, Hey, let me ask him if he knows, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, I just want to know, know what's going on. And a lot of times they've lost their contacts to the street. You know, they, they can't go back, whatever. And uh, if you want to talk to somebody about the old days or whatever, it only makes sense. Um, but just sometimes I'll have a conversation with somebody, maybe from law enforcement, an old partner or something, and we're like, hey, whatever happened? Do you remember? We'll, maybe we'll have an argument over the way something went down. 
and I'll call one of these guys and, hey, how did, it, how did this thing go again? So um, I'd say about half the guys I arrested went back to crime. Um, but the guys who didn't were more sophisticated. And um, yeah, so uh, like I said, we're all the same. You know, we all have the same goals in life. We, we want to uh, be taken care of financially. Um, we want, you know, nothing but good things for our family and friends. And, you know, those, that's, that's the meeting ground right there. And you'll find that you have a lot more in common with these people than you would think. It's just that for whatever reason, um, well, and probably for particular reasons, we've chosen other paths or we've been fortunate enough to um, have been, um, you know, gifted with a, with a, a better life, better opportunities. So, um, but yeah, so the show is, uh, you know, any member of organized crime, you know, Italian guys, black guys, uh, Mexican gangs, I don't care who it is. I'd love to have anybody on the show. I'd love to, um, you know, just talk about, talk about the life and, um, you know, the past was, uh, you know, the era I come out of in New York was the most violent in the history of New York City. You said in, it was uh, like in 2000 homicides or something like well, that? Well, I think in 91, we had about 225, 2,225. Um, now, you, if you had that many people killed, right? So if you had, you know, let's just say 20, 2,200, how many people got shot and lived? The surgeons we had in the emergency rooms were unbelievable. They had such great experience in New York. So a lot of people survived shootings. Um, robberies were off the hook. You know, um, it was a bad place. Um, so nowadays I look and like, you know, it's nothing. You, you would have the impression that it's the like New York City and, and Frisco and all these places like the worst, worst places in the world. And they're really not. The problem is it's all this low-level petty crime that district attorneys refuse to prosecute, whether it's these guys who run in and do hits on jewelry stores and uh, high-end clothes in places like Nordstrom's or uh, these street people who are living out in their own filth in Frisco and L.A. Um, it's the quality of life that is, is horrible, and it kills big cities, it kills commerce, and it's really the role of the district attorneys who refuse to cooperate and, you know, uh, prosecute crimes that are really destroying uh, places like New York. Um, I hope one day it changes. So, uh, but for now, um, yeah, I'm here in Tulsa, Oklahoma, a very high rate of crime here, but it's all like in, in certain areas. You know, I don't feel, I've never really felt unsafe here. I don't carry a gun out in the street. Um, if you come to my house, I have a lot of guns. But, uh, and, you know, uh, you know, and that's how things should be, you know. Um, are you a fan you, of open carry? What's that? Are you, a fa are you a fan of open carry like we um, have here? You know, I don't, yes and no. You know, I mean, uh, I like to have the freedom to purchase a weapon legally and, uh, and have it without, you know, um, having to jump through a million hoops and a bureaucracy to get it or being told, no, I can't have it. Some of the open carry stuff is a little over the top for me. Not, uh, not in Oklahoma, huh? <laughs> yeah, you know what, though? I don't see it that much, but you know I see it a lot? Uh, guys with empty holsters because the store they're in doesn't allow open carry. Yeah. So you see guys, let's say, in like Walmart with the empty holster. You know, it's just kind of, I don't know. I think it's like a status symbol for some guys. Yeah, I got to... Uh, absolutely. You know, yeah. but... Uh, 
I, you know, I'm, I'm not particularly for it, but I'm not particularly against it either. Um, but you know, I've always carried a concealed weapon, obviously. So <clears throat> I, I like it better that way, you know. I can't help but think what, uh, you know, we have first 48 here, what that would have been like if you had that in New York during that time with, with 2000 plus homicides. I mean, yeah, no, I mean, you might have three, four homicides in one police precinct in one night, you know, um, some of these precincts were small, like one square mile, you know, you have two or three homicides in a night. It was crazy, you know? And, um, yeah, I mean, can you imagine how you're, you know, you have a certain amount of detectives on deck in the precinct and they're also uh investigating robberies burglaries all these different crimes and now they have three or four homicides like how do you keep up with that you know so um yeah no they were really difficult times uh cold case units that were formed later on uh were able to solve a lot of those crimes because people had didn't feel um as much in fear to come forward or got jammed up and were looking for some kind of consideration um yeah, so uh, we ended up backtracking and, and, and finding uh, ways to solve some of them. But yeah, no, it was, it was crazy. So. You, ever have, you ever think you might have any opportunity or, or um, did you have any knowledge of at the time uh, of, of Waddy Bulger's crew coming from Boston? No, or is that but too I, far away from uh, you? No, but I do know a guy uh, who it was a Genovese guy uh, who can speak to being in prison with, uh, with Whitey. Uh, but no, uh, you know, in, in New York, we call Boston Scranton with clams. It's when we don't think very highly of it. It's a big rivalry, as you know, with our teams. But yeah, no, um, some really bad guys in that town, really bad guys, really violent guys. Uh, but no, I don't know much about it. I do know the story out here, but yeah, I, I don't watch a ton of true crime. I mean, I do, but I don't, um, I'm not like a fanatic, but I did watch uh, black mass a couple months ago. Um, and it just made me think of it. So yeah, yeah, no, he, that, that cause, guy, of, cause those guys flipped, well, right. Quite a few of them. Yeah. Well, um, the FBI, you know, uh, and, and New York FBI was guilty of it too. They, they had the best informant, the highest level informant. And, uh, they wanted to keep that going. Um, and then there probably came a point where like, oh my God, I got, I've let this guy get away with so much. How can we ever prosecute him? It'll, I'll be exposed for letting him get away with this stuff, you know? So I think that's probably what happened on a few of these cases, but there's some, um, I think it was Greg Scarper in New York. They found out was a cooperator for many years. Um, it's not, it, it's something that has, and there's probably other incidents we don't even know about other players out there, but yeah, um, don't know much about the Boston crew, um, but there's guys out there telling the story. So it's good. Um, Bill, I did want to ask a couple of, of questions uh, too. I, I tried to cover a lot of them, but just a couple more, if you don't mind, sure. uh, that were directly submitted. Um, one being, you feel like most of the people or everyone you caught was actually guilty of the crime, or do you think there were some times where it did not match up? Uh, yeah, so that, that does happen, you know, um, witnesses can be bad. Um, there could be a misidentification. Uh, I did come across once where a detective had made an arrest. We didn't think that the defendant did it. Uh, we were talking amongst ourselves. I was in a robbery squad. We did pattern robberies. What's so a, what's a pattern robbery? like numerous robberies and oh, so just, yeah same guys two guys one guy's got a shotgun kind of thing you okay. know you so you see so you put them all together um 
Yeah, so a guy made an arrest. I didn't think he did it, but, you know, um, he was picked out of a lineup. Um, and uh, I ended up making an arrest with some precinct guys about two months later and got the actual guys. And this guy was cleared of it. Um, but what you what used to happen, and I don't know how they do it anymore, but, you know, we used to have a book full of photos or we'd use a computer uh, software and we'd load it up with different people. And, uh, you know, uh, people are trying to help you. They're trying to help themselves solve a crime. And sometimes there are misidentifications. And the way you present opportunities for people to look through these mugshot books and stuff, I think was probably responsible more than any other, um, you know, of, of misidentifications, that that would be the way it would happen. And I don't know how they, they handle it anymore. But, you know, if you pick somebody's photo out and you look at the guy and he's just like an assault guy, he's a drunk or something, you know, you'd have to say to yourself, this can't be the guy, you know. Uh, but yeah, so... I mean, I've seen it happen, but I, I never saw it happen maliciously or for uh, reasons like that, but sure. Uh, some detectives are better than others. Some have more experience than others. Some are a little bit too maybe aggressive and want to lock up the world. But um, yeah, you don't need mugshot books anymore. You just look for the cameras, <laughs> you know? So, but yeah, no, I've, I've seen it happen. Uh, like I said, it was nothing malicious. But yeah, sure it happens. These two could maybe go together depending on your answer, but uh, could you tell us about one of the biggest cases that you were most proud of solving? And then maybe who was one of the more powerful people that you worked hard to put away? Yeah, well, I think the one I talked about before, um, the Supreme Team, you know, we did a RICO case on them. They were responsible for numerous homicides of can their you, competitors. Can you kind of explain in layman's terms, what RICO is. Yeah, the RICO... You hear that term a lot. Yeah, RICO is basically uh, a racketeering act where people who have organized criminal, you know, um, uh, crews, uh, they need special attention and special laws to prosecute them because they're, you know, there's a leader, there's a structure of soldiers and, uh, you know, uh, guys out on the street, associates, made guys, uh, they're complex. And when you're working for an organization, even if you're a guy who's just bringing in maybe the sports betting um, and you're kicking up to the boss at top, you are part of an organization. And even though you're a low level player, you deserve to be charged um, with, with a, a more serious crime. So you're getting penalized you're getting for falling up to the top? Well, you're getting penalized for being a part of a crew, being a car. Like, you know, you don't have to be the murderer in that crew. But if you're a part of that crew, you're, you're all basically being treated as the same. You're being treated as an organization as opposed to, you know, a specific act that you were. So you might do of. something a little more low level, but because you're contributing to a bigger organization, you're going to get hit harder. Exactly. Okay. So so RICO cases have <clears throat> they've decimated a lot of, um, you know, the bigger organized crime groups in the country. Um, they've used it with gangs. It, it became really popular. Uh, Giuliani started using it constantly when he uh, was at the Southern District, running the Southern District, um, uh, which is the U.S. Attorney's Office in, uh, in New York, I'm speaking of. So yeah, um, it's a great effective tool. And um, 
you know, if you have a gang in North Tulsa that's terrorizing people, they're having shootouts with other organizations, they're selling drugs to your kids, it's nice to have the ability to get them the appropriate sentences that they deserve um, that you might not be able to when you just keep grabbing them for, um, you know, selling drugs on the corner. They get maybe a year or two. Um, but, um, you know, when they're also maybe stealing cars and they're also, you know, uh, doing some kind of fraud and whatever, it's one organization and the leader reaps the benefits of it. And, uh, yeah, so they, you know, if you want to be a part of an organization, you got to expect to, uh, to do bigger time. So, um, oddest piece, uh, oddest or strangest piece of evidence or clue that helped you lead to a large bust. Hmm. You know, I can't, <laughs> that's a good question. Yeah. I tell you, know, it's, it's little things. Uh, you know, guys in Baltimore did a search warrant once that involved an organization I had. And, um, I asked them if I could go through the evidence that they had. It was a double homicide in Owings Mills, Maryland. And, um, the, the guys were killed out in the street were, had a stash house that was part of an organization in New York. And they didn't have much to go on with the homicides initially. And we had information that, or they had information um, that it was a group that I was investigating. So I went down and asked them if I could look through the evidence. And I, I, we found a VHS tape and I popped it in. And it was a woman speaking on the telephone with an old school VHS camera pointing it out the window. And she's on the phone. She's going, well, well, he's he's outside now. He's in his car and there's a barbecue. Get over here now, you know. And in the background, you can hear like a television show or a radio show. I think it was a television show. And so um, it came to me that that film, this woman was uh, being paid to give a guy up whenever he showed up in this location there was a hit team out there waiting for him to show up at different locations she called one uh, her boyfriend who was part of the hit crew and said all right he's out here now get over here oh. and they wanted it filmed they wanted his death filmed oh, wow. <laughs> so uh so anyway she gets scared at the end puts the camera down so I she said, was actually going to film the shooting yeah wow so i, I figured out <clears throat> what the shooting was and then my partner uh guy tony castiglia was Really great detective. He uh, he ended up getting the television shows that day for when the homicide happened, and you can sync it with the the camera action and her guiding in the hit teams. So you know, it's just like one of those things. Like uh, you know, you could put the the video in and just like it's some woman. You know, and there was a lot of nonsense going on before it, where I could have just thrown it back in the box or whatever. So yeah, but I mean, you had like. You just had this inclination, you threw it no, in No, I mean, I just wanted to know what, I mean, if, if you find something in a stash house and it's a VHS tape, obviously, you know, you, you got to do your due diligence and, and watch it. It's got to be something of interest. And, uh, but I think I, re I you know, maybe I, re I think I remember that it was a little uh, wobbly in the beginning where it was kind of like, what the hell is this person doing? And it was really difficult to listen to. Um, but yeah, it became apparent after a minute or two that, uh, this is something I need to watch. And so anyway, that was part of the evidence. Just one piece of evidence in a chain of things. We got some people to cooperate. Um, yeah. And uh, it, it was just another, uh, 
it was just another piece of evidence we needed. You know, all these little things add up. Um, there was also with that case, there was messages back and forth to each other on pagers that, you know, were useful too. So um, you have to know how to, you know, you got to like subpoena everything, you know, phone records, pager records. Um, it's changed so much over the years too. I mean, digitally now, you know, I mean, you can go into a chat room on like, you know, Call of Duty and make a drug <laughs> deal. I mean, if you're really sophisticated, and who's going to follow you? You know, the next week you, you pick another game, right? So there's so many ways to get away with things. And, you know, uh, but if you have an informant and they tell you how they're doing it, you know, that's, that's half the battle. So if you get a, you know, if you have a good team of investigators and one guy's got really good informants, you know, guys are really aggressive and, and believe in, you know, uh, going out there, pounding the streets and putting the hours in to get this stuff done. It's, um, it's very rewarding. And, you know, uh, I was lucky that about two or three times in my career, I worked with really good guys, you know, and I didn't have to so much rely on my own, um, abilities, but like have guys that were as good, better than me. And, you know, you pick up so much and, um, yeah, I mean, working with good guys and finding good teams is hard, you know. Um, there's always, you know, there's some teams you could be in that, you know, the boss is no good. There's a few people they brought in that are just friends of his and not his hard worker. Everyone's disgruntled. People are looking to get out. And then you have a team of guys that are just on point, good boss, gives you everything you need. You have all the resources and you just go wild and you get everything done. And, um, you know, you follow it through to the end with, with convictions that really mean a lot to people. Um, you know, on, on one case, I got to call a woman on the phone whose son was killed. Um, and his son read a letter at the sentencing that was very heartfelt and, um, you know, um, some closure for them to me, you know, um, if somebody hurt somebody in my family, I'd want revenge. You know, I want something to happen to those people. I want them to pay with their, you know, the death penalty years in prison. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, that's not for us to say, that's for the courts to say, but it's nice to be able to bring about, um, closure for people, a successful prosecution and get people out of the neighborhoods and, and areas that they're, uh, are suffering under these guys, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, last question I had, um, could you tell us about one of the more intense moments that you've had in your career? Intense? Intense. Oh man. We could be here for an hour. I'll tell you the. I'll tell you a funny story. I'm going to tell you the first. I'm going to tell you my first arrest, which is the greatest story in the world. The first one was the best one. My first arrest I ever made. Forty uh, Second Street and Eighth Avenue, Times Square area, 1984. Uh, really bad. Times Square is one of the worst places in New York City at the time. Uh, hookers, transvestites, uh, you know, uh, teen prostitutes. Robbers, scammers, uh, drunks, you know, the people that like that kind of stuff, uh, sex clubs and porn theaters, just a really bad place, but very colorful and crazy and a great place to get, you know, experience. So I'm working with an old timer and he tells me, we were on a foot post, tells me, do not touch that radio. Don't go running anywhere without me. Just stay with me. Follow my lead. So we stand there, we're just talking and he sounds says, like, sounds like training day. Yeah, so he said, I'm going to go across the street and get some coffee, and I'll be right back. You want anything? No. All right, I'll be right back. Don't do anything. Don't go anywhere. Um, 
I watch him across the street. He goes into this coffee shop, and all of a sudden, I hear these screams. I run around the corner. Uh, I don't listen to him. I run around the corner, <laughs> and there is a guy. There's a like a six foot tall black transvestite, about you know, like I said, six foot, uh, huge guy stabbing a guy in his hands, like he has his hands up, deflecting the knife. Sees me and takes off running, and I get on the radio. I'm running away. I'm running, running away from my, uh, you know, senior officer, and uh, screaming into the radio as I run. And I end up in a bar that I don't even know where, where I am. Uh, and it's a transvestite bar, so I run in, <laughs> and there's about twenty transvestites and their admirers in this funky little bar. And uh, I see a transvestite in the corner breathing heavy, and I know I got my guy. When I try to make the arrest, um, the uh, other transvestites surround me. <laughs> now I'm like, you know what? I mean, my first day, if I get beat up, well, my first week, whatever it was, if I get beat up by transvestites, it's not going to be the good start, you know, um, of a career. And uh, so anyway, uh, a guy steps forward and starts pushing people back, uh, you know, helping me. I'm ho holding on to this guy. And uh, all of a sudden, the door kicks open to the bar, and the boys come in, and wigs are flying, bodies are flying <laughs> out. I am rescued. I make my arrest, and um, yeah. Are flying. And then you know, going back to the police station and have to search, you know, a guy with forty D breast and a penis that could get him into porn movies was an <laughs> odd experience for a young guy. And I later found out that the black guy who stepped forward to help me in that bar was a, a retired boxer named Emil Griffin. Uh, and Emil was a gay guy who was in the closet, didn't want to come out. Um, I guess Emil was in the 60s, 70s at his height in boxing in the 1960s or 70s. Anyway, uh, he was taunted about his homosexuality and he went into the ring and actually beat his opponent to death. He was so angry. If you look it up, really? you'll see the information. So Emil helped me out. Um, later on, uh, and show you how crazy New York was, Emil walked into a bank with a note to rob the bank and they couldn't read it and they threw him out of the bank. So the cops grabbed him a block or two away and it was like, you know, they couldn't read the note and they were just like, all right, get out of here, Emil. You know, so he was just, he was a down and out alcoholic guy who, but he saved my ass for a few minutes. I, I would have taken a pound until those guys found me, you know? And so that was, and then it was a good lesson, you know? Don't uh, know where you're at, you know? You start running down streets, you don't even know where you're at, how you're gonna get help when you need it. And, uh, you know, picking your corner. I should have just opened that door. I saw my guy, stopped back, you know, got on the radio. You know, I did everything wrong, but that's how you learn. So, what yeah, that your... was that was the craziest night, I think. You know, that was a pretty <laughs> crazy one, story. Arrest right? one. What did your, uh, what did your senior officer say? Yeah, he was, he was mad at me, you know, too, because he, you know, it, you know, I mean, he was there with the troops. So I'm, it wasn't like anyone was asking him what happened. He was like, see, see, you know, and I was like, yeah, yeah, I get it. But then again, you know, people like him said, all right, well, this kid, you know, he's into it. You know what I mean? He's got balls. He ran in the place. We know he's stand up. We know he'll, you know, he'll do what we need him to do. Some people, you know, too, like you run into guys, they don't want to make arrests. They want nothing to do with nothing. They just want to get through their eight hours. Write some tickets. Well, not even that. Just like, you know, <laughs> they don't, you know, they want to do the bare minimum. So, um, you know, um, like every job, 10% of the people do the real work, um, you know, but the patrol guys, in you know, they really hold the city together. Those guys don't get any mention and they have the hardest jobs going as the guys out on patrol dealing with all this craziness on the street level. 
those are the guys who hold the cities together and the detectives get all the glory but you know um yeah it's a tough job um you know this is a tough town tulsa you know they have a good homicide unit here good reputation and um you know um i know they're hurting for for talent right now yeah i mean you know who wants to be a cop anymore you know I mean, if I was going to be a cop, I don't think this is a bad city to be a cop in. You, there's lots of experience that you'll get here. Great homicide unit. Um, I never hear too many bad things, you know, about um, you know any kind of scandals or anything. Else. They seem to all have really have it together. And uh, I know a couple of them now that I've been here a while, and they're all stand-up guys, good guys. So, and, and typically in the Midwest, South you get a lot of support from the community for the most part. And I think that, yeah. you know, the, the homicide team will credit here. A lot of their homicides are helped side by the community. You know, we have like an, a 90% ratio or solve rate and all of them typically say it's, it's a large part due to the community. Yeah. Well, yeah, uh, absolutely. There's, there's, there's a little bit of that, but um, it's a tough job staying up late on those homicides when they first happen uh, trying to follow through people so people don't flee people don't get away people don't get to other witnesses to tell them not to cooperate um, yeah I mean that's a it's one of the toughest gigs I mean I did it for a little bit as a precinct detective and uh, you know your body takes a pound and staying up for days you know um, there's a lot of dedication to that it's unhealthy you work late hours uh, those guys deserve a lot of credit and uh, you know I haven't seen too many of the shows I'm not I'm not big into that stuff I don't, I, forget, I don't watch a ton either. My I, wife does. but Yeah, I forget where I was. Maybe it was on a plane or a hotel, and it was one of those, you know, 48-hour deals. And it was Tulsa, Tulsa. Every time I ever turned on, it was Tulsa. And, uh, you know, you could tell but these guys got their – they got it together. They know what they're doing. They're good, solid guys. So um, can't say that about every, everybody in the United States. A lot of times, you know, uh, police are a product of uh, the government that's uh, – you know, controlling the uh, department. So, um, yeah. So I think you guys are in good hands. Um, Bill, I've enjoyed talking with you. Um, I, you've got through most of my questions too, that I had submitted. Do you got anything else for us before we close it out? No, I listen. No. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, always keep you updated on what we got going and yeah, no, it's called the proffer, the proffer podcast. Uh, right now I'm on YouTube about to start on Patreon, uh, building up my audience, like and sub subscribe. Are you going to do it, Apple and Spotify as well? Just audio, or are you going to do? Mainly it is. It is on audio. I use a, a one of these uh, apps that uh, sends it to Apple, it Spotify, okay. and something else. So, because uh, I, I watched the YouTube, I didn't see it on Apple yet, but um, it should be. I've been having trouble <laughs> getting the word out because there's a basketball uh, coach named Bill Courtney, and he puts out a ton of videos. So if you and then there's a the guy, the professor, the basketball player. They call him the professor. He plays uh, uh -huh. street ball out in the street, and he's like a showboaty kind of guy. So you know, who knows? Maybe actually, I think I think you're right. When I topped, I typed in the proffer on YouTube. I think that was the first thing. So then I had to add the proffer podcast, and it popped yeah. up. Well, if you look too at algorithms and popularity, um, and sh and and podcasts that generate income, they'll always pop them to the top. So while I'm getting my start, it's hard to get the audience. Um, but, you know, once I start getting the bigger mobsters and stuff like that, um, I think I'll find my audience. And I think I have it more than just law enforcement. I have, you know, you know, like I said, I, I did the Sopranos episode. I found a girl whose parents, she was orphaned when I put her parents in jail. Um, you know, 
I'm, I'm willing to cover everything, let everyone have their opinion. Um, I don't, um, I'm not looking to get into it with people. Your opinion is your opinion. You say yours and I'll say my perspective on it. Everyone has the, uh, the ability to, to speak. Um, I just don't like to get into politics or political ideology and mix that in. It, it doesn't do any good. Um, but yeah, so it's the proffer. The, um, you could look it up by the proffer podcast and, um, or my name, Bill Courtney, and um, going to be doing as many events as we can in Tulsa. Show's going to have to travel a little bit, but yeah. Um, and then if you're really into rap and beefs and all the craziness, I have some really killer stuff coming out. So um, I'm going to try to get that uh, out on, you know, find my audience with that because it's it's really going to be interesting to some people. Well, Bill, thank you once again. Let me know. If I can help in any way, I'll share your stuff. Um, and then I absolutely will be in attendance for, for one of the live episodes. I think that's awesome. I think Lindsay and I would both like to go. So, Well, awesome. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, um, I'll see you guys there. I'll comp you tickets, buy a beer, and uh, we'll see you then. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. All right, pal. Thank you. Thank you.